the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Let's talk about some battle lines being drawn that is comprised of entertainment, the Internet, Madison Avenue, social media, even institutionalized enemies of your beliefs and values. And it is a battle for the hearts and minds of your children. What can we do to be better prepared to wage or protect our children in the middle of this battle? Well, a look today at 30 ways, 30 days to strengthen your family. And uh, joining me tonight is the author of this new book, former vice president of the Heritage Foundation, also serves currently on the board of directors for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. And a new book out tonight, again, 30 ways in 30 days to strengthen your family, newly published by David C. Cook Publications and Rebecca Hegland. Great to have you on the program. Hey, thank you. It's an honor for me to finally be on the air with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think we as parents understand that there's a battle afoot here. Uh, The problem is really understanding how these battle lines are drawn, Rebecca, and I guess understanding, too, and you you make this differentiation very early on in your book, that we need to be able to, to divide in our mind the understanding that our battle here is not really with our children, though many parents would feel like that that's exactly who they're doing battle with. But in reality, the real battle here is with the culture, isn't it? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I wanted to provide a handbook for parents so they could face, um, you know, the world and trying to raise their children with character with some help. And one of the chapters in there is called Battle the Culture, Not Your Child. And what it encourages parents to do is just kind of sit back and reflect on the fact that, hey, it is adults that are designing the pornographic websites. Adults are designing the songs for 10-year-old girls. Adults are designing the raunchy music that so many children um, are being pummeled with. Your battle's not with your child. Your battle is frequently with adults who have a different worldview than you do. And they're vying for the dollars that today's youth spend. I mean, our children today are the most affluent children in the history of the world, and the fact that they, for the first time in many generations, um, have their own disposable income, and 
the marketers know that. And so they're after that share of the pie. And unfortunately, what they've learned how to do, there's also a chapter called Learn How Marketers Target Your Children, which is a study into um, how executives of a lot of these companies, MTV in particular, brag about not how they know what teenagers want, but they brag about how they've learned to manipulate the teenage mind. And so it's important for parents to understand this. Um, and then once parents read at least those couple chapters to sit down and go over them with their children too, because then it becomes you and your child against the world versus you against your child. And you know, the and irony is really important for, for our parents when they raised us, of course, the environment, uh, the culture and times in which we lived was very different. Today, these battles and the battle lines are being drawn in, as you're suggesting, Rebecca, in a number of different uh, arenas. I mean, it's not just Madison Avenue and the disposable income that your children have access to and they're being viewed as all potential customers from uh, virtually the age of zero on up. But then, too, there are individuals out there that have a social engineering agenda that that uh, it really draws a battle line. And then outright exploitation, too. Yep, absolutely. I mean, in, in America, it used to be that the social institutions, by and large, came along beside parents and helped them. Um, today, you have a lot of educators, and certainly the NEA is, is driving a wedge between parents and their children, telling parents they're not smart enough, that, you know, that they know better, uh, the teachers know better, that you don't really have any rights once your kids go in the schoolhouse door. And even the medical profession has changed a lot in the fact they used to help support parents raise children of character. I actually have a story in there about taking my daughter, who was 12 years old, for a sports physical. And the pediatrician, female pediatrician, actually, after she did the physical, asked me to leave the room because she said she needed to talk privately with my daughter. And I go through the story of how I said, uh, no, I will stay here for anything you have to say to my daughter. And the long, to make a long story short, the point is that I did some research after that, and uh, the American Cat Academy of Pediatrics is actually encouraging doctors to ask parents to leave the room so the doctors can talk to the children about sexual information. Um, and what the doctor was trying to share with my daughter is, hey, it's up to you to do what you feel. Um, some people believe sex is, you know, only for marriage, but you get to decide that at 12 years old. Um, and so this is a book that really shows how the social institutions are um, undermining um, parents and families and what to do to fight back and how to do so joyfully, I might add. And, of course, that, that is key, because at the end of the day, I think parents sometimes, you know, we're busy with careers and responsibilities that parents have to pay the mortgage and uh, pay tuition at school and, and do all of that. And then on top of it, trying to raise a child um, in an environment that is God-honoring with the kind of um, values that we'd like to see passed on to our sons and daughters. And sometimes I think parents grow weary in the middle of this battle, and all of a sudden now, there becomes confusion. It seems as if we're battling our child and not battling the culture. So how do we differentiate between the two? And most importantly, how can we engage our child in a, at a level in which we can really have not only 
effective communication, but also walk away with a sense that uh, they're getting what we're trying to say, even with the so-called, uh, uh, you know, uh, gender or, or uh, uh, age gap. We're visiting today with Rebecca Hagelin. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And when we come back, we're going to talk about an important key as we kind of go over some of the highlights of the book, including this notion that just like soldiers at war, we ourselves must commit to this battle on behalf of our children daily. Our conversation with Rebecca Hegelin continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And as we're learning this afternoon from author Rebecca Hagelin and the new book she's written called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family, it's not the battlefield for the heart and mind of your child. It's the battlefields, plural, be it media, advertising, social engineering, uh, those that would literally um, uh, prey upon your children in the arena of sex trade, pedophilia, even the pressure that they receive from their peers, all comes together to conspire against the parent who is really trying in this day and age to uh, train up a child in the way that he or she should go and uh, have love and respect and uh, live to a set of, of moral codes or moral values that you and your faith have established for your son or daughter. And, of course, one of the issues at play here is that, as I mentioned before the break, Rebecca, parents can get weary and tired. But this um, this is much like a real war, isn't it, in that the soldiers need to commit and recommit to this on a daily basis if we're ever going to have any chance of winning. Yeah, but I call it purposeful parenting. And you really do have to get up in your heart every day uh, committed to this battle. Because guess what? The pornographers don't start. The people who are teaching our children that they're just here by accident, you know, um, there's some advanced form of primordial ooze, they don't stop. The garbage on the television or the Internet doesn't stop. So what I did when I was a parent of three teenagers simultaneously, I started I started waking up with a simple prayer in my heart, which went something like this, and I've got it in the chapter on Commit to the Daily Battle. Dear Lord, please help me today, on this one day, to stand up for the principles that you've set for my family, to, to touch my children in some deep and meaningful way in their heart, so that I know that they know that I love them, and I'm there for them, and I have their backs. Just give me enough grace on this one day to be courageous and joyful, Lord. And and I can tell you, if you break it down day by day, you can do this. And you can find great joy because when you share truth with your children, you help them determine between truth and lies. Great joy and freedom comes from that. Um, you know, one of the other things that's really important in this daily battle, and I have a whole chapter on this too, is you don't make your health a no zone. It can't be, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. You have to be able to help your children make alternative choices that are fun and enjoyable for them. And again, this is about finding joy in parenting um, God's way. And it's actually woven all throughout every chapter on the book about how to do that. Now, it could be argued, well, uh, Rebecca, here's the challenge. Uh, there are so many arenas, as we've suggested, that uh, parents are battling today. My goodness, how could I ever hope to inoculate them against everything that's out there? And I guess that's the difference between uh, teaching them item by item versus 
in equipping them with the ability to think on their own based on a set of moral guidelines and standards that would serve as the compass or the guidelines for them so that when they run into things that are not good and not healthy for them, be it the source of the Internet, television, social media, whatever, that they've got the capacity to be able to engage in some judgment call on their own. That's exactly right. I mean, the purpose of my book is not to tell parents to build walls around your children to protect them from the world. Number one, that's a bad idea. Number two, you can't do that. You do exactly what you just said. It's about developing in them an internal moral compass and showing them how to use it. Because your children are going out into the world every day. In just a few short years, they're going to be walking down that graduation aisle and out your door. And, you know, our children are not always going to make the right choices that my husband and I determined they are going to know the difference between right and wrong. They're not going to live leave our house wondering what is right and they're not going to leave our house believing in all the lies that the culture is trying to teach them. And it makes them stronger and it uh, makes them really protecting them from a lot of the negative consequences that their peers are going to be suffering. Um, if you teach them these strong moral principles when they're young and do it every day. And, of course, that also takes some commitment on our behalf, doesn't it? I mean, it would be nice to say as a parent, well, here's this list of do's and don'ts that I've typed up. So just keep this in your back pocket, and whenever a question comes up, just refer to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, as we're suggesting. And I would imagine that in terms of helping them understand and, and create the ability to reason through and know the difference in the variety of ways in which they will be bombarded by all of these sources with the kind of tough choices that they have to make, and that I guess at the end of the day, Rebecca, comes simply through time and interaction with our kids. You you can't do this by remote, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the world will try to tell you, oh, don't worry, it's about quality time versus quantity time. You know, it's actually both. I mean, God gave little babies to moms and dads for a reason. It's because we are supposed to hold them in our arms and in our hearts and teach them what is true and what is not true. And you can't do that in just a few minutes a day. Uh, You do it over a lifetime. You do it by creating family time. You know, I've got a chapter in there on that, and that's what it's called. And I use the word create very deliberately because you're not going to find extra family time. You have to create it in today's culture. Um, you have to learn how to have meaningful discussions with your children. And I provide some tips that I work for others um, that are in the book as well. And uh, again, you know, when children are in a home where they know mom and dad are committed to them, where they understand, you know, where the boundaries are and what the foundation is, Children, study after study reveals they're happier, they're healthier emotionally, um, they're less likely to be involved in drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage. There's just a thousand and one reasons why you should be engaged in purposeful parenting and, and starting afresh and anew tonight if, if you've not done that before. And going back to my notion that a, a simple list of do's and don'ts is not going to cut it, is modeling important here so that as the child watches you make the decisions and go through just day-to-day household life and what it means to be a parent and the child is watching you is it important that you're you're modeling consistency in terms of setting the example 
Yes, it's always important. I've actually got chapters there about helping to teach your children how to to make good friendships. And uh, part of that includes, why don't you, mom and dad, take a few minutes to examine your own friendships? Um, your children are watching the friends you choose. Um, there's information there. You know, a lot of people worry about their kids dealing with peer pressure. Well, there are a lot of moms and dads that won't deal too well with peer pressure ourselves. And um, so there's information there, kind of look like a little workbook at the end of each chapter to help parents kind of get their own house in order and realize uh, that they do have to set that a good example. And your children are really, they're dying for you to do that. They're just waiting for you to step up to the plate and really practice what we preach. And, um, and, and again, a lot of joy comes from when you do that and live that way. And Rebecca, I would imagine they're probably watching a lot closer than we would suspect. In other words, the inconsistency of saying to a child, uh, it's not okay to steal gum, uh, you know, walking through the uh, the five and dime store. Does it even exist anymore? <laughs> it's not okay to steal gum. So you're, you're trying to instill in your child the notion that it's not okay to steal. And then for your child to overhear a conversation between you and your spouse about how you've underreported, uh, you know, some side income from your income taxes, <laughs> they're, they're they're going to catch on to those things, aren't they? Oh, they're totally going to catch on to those things. And, you know, when you tell your child, you get a phone call and you say, tell them I'm not here. And you think, oh, that's just a little white lie. A lie is a lie. And your children are learning from you. And they know that, oh, mom and dad tell me it's wrong to lie, but they lie to their friends. So it really starts with examining, you know, your own heart and home and and mom and dad sitting down and and realizing, you know what, if we've made mistakes, it's okay. We're going to start over. One of one of the things I find um, that's so sad is parents of teenagers. Oftentimes, they'll hear me speak and they'll think, beginning, "Oh, it's too late. I've done it all wrong." And my my answer to that is, as long as there is breath in you, there was there's always a chance to repair and restore and make stronger a relationship in your life. And along with that, um, our kids are looking for heroes. In a day and an age when there are so many anti-heroes out there, wouldn't it be nice whether you're starting when, you know, the kids are, are six days old, six years, or, you know, they're in your 60s and you're in your 80s, to be able to to have a son or a daughter say, mom was my hero, dad is my hero? Oh, my goodness. It's so important. Um, and again, I have another chapter on that because today hero is confused with sports star, right? Oh, yes. Or movie <laughs> star or recording star. And it's very important to teach our children what makes a real hero and what a hero is so that they can learn to do heroic things in their own life. You know, a hero is, is most often described as somebody who makes sacrifices on behalf of another. And uh, we need to teach our children that and find heroes in your own family to start with. Maybe you had a, a you know, a great-grandfather or grandfather who who has served in World War II. Or, you know, or maybe you have a friend whose son is a soldier in Afghanistan or something. Look for heroes close to home. Um and tell their stories to your children and show them as role models 
you know, rather than that latest basketball star who's in trouble again um, for the way he's treated his girlfriend or something. Um, very important for our kids to understand that. Yeah, and, and helping them to understand the difference, as Rebecca points out. Uh, newsflash for a lot of kids and parents out there. Kim Kardashian's not a hero. Kanye West is not a hero. But there are plenty of heroes out there, and you can start to influence your child in a big way to become a hero in their eyes as well, no matter when you start. And I think that's an encouraging message that Rebecca Hegelin has shared with us today. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And what's great about the book is it's it's pretty interactive, and um, a lot of the uh, sort of the backside to all of these uh, insights uh, are followed up on by Rebecca's daughter. And so you get a chance to kind of see the parental perspective, child's perspective, what all that means and how that dialogue, how that interaction, how that quality time can come about. The book, again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. Its author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Rebecca Heglin. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. The book, by the way, published by David Cook, available in bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com as well as on Rebecca's website, theresurgent.com. That's theresurgent.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. America over the last two generations now, some 50 years, experts argue, has slowly and methodically been killing itself. The problem is called obesity. From the days when we ate a healthy and wholesome diet, we have come to live to gorge ourselves at the buffet table. Assuming, since everything there technically is edible and tastes so good, it thus should be eaten. We have abandoned healthy eating and embraced a new, more appealing cookbook of chemically and genetically modified foods that last longer, taste better, and thus we ate more food of less quality, filled with empty calories or all the wrong calories, that while may taste good, are actually bad for us and ultimately killing us. Medical experts warn if we don't change our diet and eating pattern soon, America will wind up one big, fat, lazy, useless, physically bankrupt nation. Now let's look at another similarly dangerous pattern of the last two generations. While the first is slowly bringing about our physical destruction, the second, more dangerous than the first, is bringing about our spiritual destruction. The problem is called sin and counterfeit doctrine. From the days when we read the Word, attended biblically sound churches, and embraced true discipleship, we have come to live to gorge ourselves at the buffet table of false teaching, assuming if it makes us feel good about ourselves, it must be true. We have abandoned sound doctrine and healthy discipleship and embraced a new, more appealing Bible of social gospel, word of faith, emergent church theology. We gorge ourselves on false teaching filled with empty promises and all the wrong doctrines that, while may make us feel good, are actually bad for the church and are ultimately spiritually killing us. And everyone who profits from marketing of this false teaching is actually an antichrist who makes out like a bandit selling nonsense and manipulated doctrine, all designed to give us an easy way out of God's design for salvation and sanctification. And the cycle of false teaching, an unhealthy church, begs for a reawakening once again. And sound biblical experts warn, if we don't change our theology and belief patterns soon, the church in America will wind up as one inept, lazy, useless, spiritually bankrupt institution. Joining me now in studio is author and theologian James Darnell. 
57% of evangelical church attendees say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Of course, that is directly at odds with the mandate in John fourteen six that Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sure. No one comes to God but through me. Mm-hmm. Your book, Saving the Saved, addresses what's happening in America's churches today. How do you respond to this shocking biblical disconnect? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, and I really enjoy our conversations together. But the disconnect that you're talking about is is a is is an effort on the church and especially church leadership and by that I'm talking about professional clergy and whatever that have come to the place to believe that that they have an answer that they have a, a way to approach the issues and the concerns that people are having today and that means uh, they're going to have to share an idea that is different, that's a little fresher, uh, that comes at them uh, with a little bit of radicalness. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of looking at the gospel and the words and the teachings of the scripture in a way that says to people, you know what, uh, maybe we have something to offer here. Maybe, maybe what God expects us to do is take the bull by the horns here and um, work with this culture. Find a way to make things um, exciting for people to uh, become involved in the life of the church. Maybe we need to make some compromise. Uh, nothing that would really hurt us doctrinally, but um, and we don't know where that may go, but, but well, let's start out with something a little bit different. So what they end up doing, and that's what the book talks about, is that they end up in this battle of supremacy that has gone on for centuries between man's kingdom and what he believes is good and God's kingdom that is already there and already underway and already have been planned and moving forward. And now what we have is we have this conflict between these two kingdoms Uh, man's kingdom and God's kingdom and saving the save what it does in four chapters at the very beginning uh, the the book is divided into uh, three parts and that very first part addresses this entire issue what it says is basically this in four chapters it outlines for people a way to understand what's happening to the church in America and, it under, and we understand it from the perspective of a secular type of, uh, of thinking uh, that's going on that says, look, um, we, have to, we have to become involved with the secular community, with the seekers, with the on-church folks. We have to bring them into our church. And you and I have had a show before uh, talking about these very issues with numbers as to what's happening across the country and people leaving the church. And, and what this has resulted in is the agenda of the church is now being uh, set and the mission of the church is now being described based on people who are not necessarily committed to Christ. There are two big buzzwords we hear these days. We hear much about tolerance. We hear a lot about inclusiveness. And yet, it seems to be at odds. You spoke about this this sense of being at odds with two major opposing worldviews, or two kingdoms. God's kingdom with a capital K and man's kingdom with a small K. 
at odds here, too, must be on one hand tolerance and inclusiveness, and on the other extreme, as we see outlined in Scripture, very exclusiveness within the claims of Christ and Christianity. I mean, for example, the individual that approaches this from a very tolerant standpoint bearing out this 57% of evangelical Christians who say, well, if God is really a loving God, then surely he will allow everybody who wants to seek him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet Christ is very exclusive in saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Narrow is the gate. So we really see at odds here on one hand inclusiveness and tolerance, mm-hmm. and the other, the exclusiveness that is at the core of God's plan for salvation. Absolutely. And it is exclusive. And the reason it's exclusive is because you have to make a choice as to how you're going to approach ministry. You cannot approach ministry with a Bible on the back burner. If you decide to do that, what that does is exactly what it describes in the second part of this book which is it describes the subtle strategic persecution that is happening to Christians in this country who are unaware of what you just said and they're they're not clear about what is really happening and how we're becoming a a godless nation when we have all these churches on every street corner and 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 people are talking constantly But here we have a public school system that has been infiltrated with these secular worldviews. We have the family that's being topsy-turvy, upside down, because uh, uh, everybody's concerned about what you can say and what you can't say to a child and how you bring them up. We have the problems with science. Here's a perfect example. Uh, We have a, a Christian community of scientists now that feel that they need to rewrite the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 because they need to include because they're convinced that that God just didn't happen to mention evolution, but he used it in in putting together the universe and so they're going to help him out a little bit and put in there this inclusive idea that man has designed and a theory that man has developed and they're going to make this part of the Holy Word of God. Does this become sort of a theological Trojan horse? And I ask that question because there's a sense that if we stay to the exclusivity of the Scripture in terms of the origin of man, God's plan for salvation, there's that sense that, well, gee, when we preach it in such a narrow fashion, church attendance is cut in half. But if we take more of an inclusive approach to all of this, we allow then larger people to be exposed to the message because it's more user-friendly. It would almost appear as if it's a bit of a theological Trojan horse, and that what we're really experiencing here is we've seen this paradigm shift within, as you point out, many institutions, be it the church itself, public education, uh, the adaption of the church, of the culture, so that now the culture influences the church and as opposed to vice versa. Mm -hmm. that a lot of this through seduction and subterfuge has come about. Absolutely. You hit the nail right in the head. That's exactly what's going on. And what has happened is pastors somehow feel that if they don't get on this bandwagon, they're going to be left out or they're going to be behind. And so they feel it's important that they learn how to do something new and fresh 
and bring something different to the church. Well, we focused more on numerical results then as opposed to spiritual results because if the pastor down the street is reporting that their church attendance Sunday morning has doubled since they've become a, an emergent church, since they've become more seeker-sensitive, uh-huh. if that's the yardstick, is this part of the problem of what pastors are looking at? Absolutely. It's a major part of the yardstick. And matter of fact, if you go to the conference that the pastors are going to to learn how to do leadership with their church, they're told that this is the only yardstick. That basically, to reach this new culture, this secularized culture, what you have to do is be inclusive. And not only that, but you have to be, in a sense, politically correct about some things. And you have to allow them to be who they need to be so they feel comfortable in the presence of God. James Darnell with us today in studio. Look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with James Darnell. We're talking about a new book called Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. You made a reference to leadership just before the break. And I'm curious, with all this focus that we see, and we've got many of these mega church conferences that take place, people are concerned about how can they become more effective, they want to be purpose-driven, they want to be seeker-sensitive, things of this sort. But it would seem that we're skipping over one important mandate, and that is that I see nowhere in Scripture where Christ says, go out and develop leaders. He does say to make disciples Are we getting the cart before the horse here? Are we building a house of cards on a foundation that is non-existent because you have a church that is focused on leadership and how to become more effective at attracting the unchurched when Christ at the core is calling us to build disciples and reach the lost? Shepherding the flock is no longer important. What's important is how many people are getting hold of the message and are we expressing the new definition of extended love to everybody, no matter who they are, what they have done, what they are doing, or what they might do in the future. I'd extrapolate on that because it would seem to me if you're no longer shepherding the flock, that means the flock is free to go and eat in any pasture they wish, whether or not the grass is healthy for them or poisonous. Absolutely. And what we have here now in the church is an apostasy of the pastorate. Uh, it's, it, it has come out of this, this secular notion of a pluralistic worldview that seems to be the global way of thinking. And we have set aside the Judeo-Christian worldview. And the Judeo-Christian worldview no longer is considered the foundation upon which Christ has built his church. It's now built upon the idea of unity. The best man has to bring to the table. And what is it that we know about God? And here's the interesting thing. God is not against knowledge. He wants us to see knowledge. There's plenty of things in Proverbs and everything else that tells us about the importance of knowledge. But with that comes wisdom. And what we're doing now is we're teaching the church somehow that what they can do if they can just um, experience God in their own way that the knowledge isn't quite as important. So therefore, you know, we, t- we take the authority of the scriptures and we kind of set that in the back burner. And we say, let's kind of experience God together. 
So what we do now is at the leadership conference, we come home with these ideas. Not only do I have a dream, not only do I think we should wonder and be into nature, but I also believe that we should use our imagination in interpreting the scriptures. Just think what it would be like. Can you imagine what it would be like for you if if you designed the scriptures, if you taught the scriptures, if you learned the scriptures, the way it would be helpful to you? And ha- therefore, you could you could be live any lifestyle you want to live, and still call yourself a Christian. And this is exactly what's happening. So we're repackaging the scripture to make it more palatable. We repackage the truth to make it more user-friendly, and yet isn't that Unitarian approach essentially denying the truth of the Scripture? Because suddenly now, with the Unitarian approach, that means that, well, we can all be right, and yes, there are many roads to heaven, and after all, wouldn't a loving God want to embrace anybody who is simply sincere about their approach? And if you talk about the exclusivity of the claims of Christ— isn't that intolerant? It doesn't that become suddenly uh, uh, language that is um, almost warlike to somebody else who doesn't believe the way we believe, doesn't interpret Scripture the way we interpret Scripture? Mm-hmm. And what it does is also it causes great division among the church and great confusion among the people who call themselves Christians and attend churches. The, the, the concern that I have here, and this is what uh, saving the Save is all about. People ought to get this book and, and read the, these details because I've, I've gone to great length as a labor of love to try to lay this out in a logical way so that people can understand that what's happening here is they have everything they need. God has given them everything. When they have come to Christ, not only are they saved, not only do they have eternal life, not only uh, will they be raised and, uh, from the dead and, and all those wonderful things, but along with that is this whole process of sanctification and the Holy Spirit living in their life. And it's not about telling your story. It's not about saying, oh, well, this happened to me uh, 15 years ago and, 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 you know, I've come through these problems and these problems and these problems. Here's when your story starts. When you're redeemed. That's when the story starts. And so when you're redeemed, Christ has placed within you. Listen to Paul. He says, this is in 2 Corinthians. He, he, he talks about, now it is God who makes us who we are and stands firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. For what reason? To guarantee the outcome. To guarantee what's going to come. Now, the interesting thing about that is, what is it that's in there that we are not shepherding, that we are not getting out, that we are not discipling? And the church refuses to talk about that. And here's what's in there. What's in there is what has happened to your heart, your regeneration, how you've Received through the imputed love of Christ, his righteousness, how you have new character in your life, and what that character and blessing means, taught by Jesus. How you become holy, how you practice holiness in your daily life, how you practice your communication now with your neighbor, how you love your neighbor, the transformation of your mind, and all the gifts that God has given you. These are all lying subtle inside 
uh, and and sub, uh, and subservient to the love that we want to have for Christ, and and they're no longer brought to the forefront because man has a better idea. So, is there a fundamental theological paradigm shift here, where on one side we have the business of making disciples, preaching Christ crucified, His shed blood for the remission of sin. And on the other side, we have the marketing of Christianity, which well, when you start to talk about this sin and offending God and God requiring shed blood for the remission of sin, yeah, that's kind of inconvenient from a marketing standpoint. That really doesn't go with the approach that's dictated by Madison Avenue. So mm-hmm. let's clean a lot of that stuff up. And instead, let's focus on how God can make you healthy and wealthy mm-hmm. or how you can feel better about yourself and be the popular person on the block because of the power of positive thinking. Absolutely. And that's what's going on. You, you've hit it again on head. That's exactly where the church is going. The church has decided that if we can experience and imagine the scripture, if you can tell your story, and you can sit in small groups and share with psychological and sociological principles how you feel and what you're experiencing in your religious life and in your spiritual growth, that that's all you need to be able to move forward in your faith as a Christian. And what we've done is we've left Christ out of that formula, and we've less, uh, left the Scriptures and what the Scriptures have taught out of that formula. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth now is what you believe. What you feel is best for you, that has become the new truth. And as far as, as life is concerned, uh, yes, we accept eternal life, but from that point forward, God since God, God believes that we need to take a sense of responsibility ourselves. So now what we do is we take over our spiritual growth and we say, <clears throat> let's go help people. Let's, let's get back in the action uh, business of the gospel. Let's try to find ways to love our neighbor. Let's do that. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's just it's out of the context in the way Christ said we should do it. And so we've decided that the scriptures are no longer the authority. And when you do that, anything goes, including uh, philosophies and, and new theologies and, and ideas. And uh, like I said in the conferences, that right now this is the time of year when the, all the conferences are being advertised. And young men from mega churches are going across the country and talking to pastors and congregations and things and telling them all about leadership, imagination, how to wander how to think about uh, things differently so that you can make your contribution to the kingdom of God. When in, in reality, they're doing exactly what you said. They're going down the broad path. And they're not going to be able to end up where they think they're going to end up. And a lot of people are going to be misled. And a lot of people are not going to get the solid foundation that they need to have. And the pastors, for all intents and purposes, have going out. Uh, gone out of the shepherding business, the d- discipling business. They're now, uh, these, these conferences that they go to and the activities and the, the money that the church is laying out uh, for programs and all the rest of it, this is costing churches a fortune. And not only that, <laughs> but the end result is not going to be any different than was the end result with the f- uh, former church movement 
by certain pastors who who went after the unchurched and whatever. We find now that those churches are closed or sold and the pastors are gone and all the rest of it. This is just another version of that same effort and that same desire to grow the church. It's all about numbers. And what do we have here? And if we have happy people who are giving their tithe and are doing fun, we don't need to go deeper. Who needs to have a deeper spiritual relationship with Christ? Uh, you got the church. You have us. We have each other. Why do we need anything else? That's the thinking. James Darnell with us in studio. A look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. Information, by the way, about the book on the web at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. A brief time out. Back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 